In August 1883, a 12-year-old Apache boy named Jack was busy filling in a mine shaft. He felt a sweat running down his neck and paused for a moment to catch his breath. He was used to the summer heat in the Arizona Territory, but today was hotter than usual. The sun baked down on the rugged brown terrain, and there was only a whisper of a breeze to cool his skin. In the distance to the south, a huge upright rock formation called Weaver's Needle stuck out prominently against the stark blue sky. As the sun made its arc overhead, the needle's shadow moved like a sundial. Taking a deep breath, Jack went back to work. He was almost done filling the funnel-shaped mine shaft. Over the last few days, he'd widened the hole before digging out a ledge about six feet down. Then he'd laid planks of ironwood over the shelf, crisscrossing them back and forth. Afterwards, he'd topped it off with more large rocks. Now he was busy backfilling the whole thing with dirt and sand to ensure that it would remain invisible to anyone who might come along. When he finally finished the task to his satisfaction, he retrieved a nearby sledgehammer and climbed 25 feet up the hillside above the mine. He hammered every rock and boulder he could find, letting them fall down the hill to cover any evidence of the buried mine shaft. When he was finished, he packed up his things, grabbed his donkey's reins, and began the long trek back to his village. As he rode away, he spared one last glance over his shoulder. The pile of rocks perfectly covered the shaft. It was the last time any person would lay eyes on the Dutchman's gold mine. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find all episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. Today, we're exploring the lost Dutchman gold mine of Arizona. It was allegedly discovered by a German immigrant named Jacob Waltz, who made himself rich and then died before he could show it to any other person. Prospectors have been searching for it for more than a century. The Lost Dutchman Gold Mine is one of the most sought-after treasure troves in U.S. history. According to one researcher in the 1970s, as many as 8,000 people go in search of it every year. The mine is believed to be buried somewhere in the western Superstition Mountains of Arizona. The range covers roughly 250 square miles, and in the 19th century, it sat over 40 miles outside of Phoenix. Thanks to modern urban sprawl, the eastern suburbs of the city now run right up into the foothills. Today, nearly everyone in Phoenix has heard this story, but separating fact from fiction is almost impossible when it comes to the tale of the lost Dutchman. 
Legend and truth are interwoven seamlessly in many accounts, and it can be difficult to discern where one ends and the other begins. So today, we'll explore the contradictory tales that have come down through the years. We'll note the parts of the story that are well-supported in the historical record. And of course, we'll tell you where we think the mine really is. We'll explore several of the more prominent expeditions to find the mines, including the very first, led by Julia Thomas in the 1890s. She was followed by Adolf Ruth, who went into the Superstition Mountains in 1931, supposedly armed with a Spanish map. His journey brought national attention to the legend and inspired numerous others to follow in his footsteps. Finally, we'll examine Glenn McGill, a private detective who may very well have found the mine in the 1960s. When gold was discovered in the mid-1800s at Sutter's Mill in Northern California, it sparked a gold rush that changed the United States forever. Prospectors spread out across the territories of the American West, looking to strike it rich. Some of these miners headed out to a mountain range in Arizona called the Sierra de la Espuma, or Mountains of Foam. The area was home to the Apache tribe, who considered the region sacred. Tribal lore suggested that the rugged mountains provided access to the underworld. This, together with their craggy, ominous appearance, led prospectors to dub the range the Superstitions. The Superstitions are aptly named. Journalist Sims Ely described them, saying, It can still seem that a malignant spirit broods in silence over its lonely fastnesses, it is a maze of draws and canyons which crisscross and interlock in wild contusion, where compass directions are undependable, where a person may easily become lost or ambushed. Among the first prospectors to explore the superstitions were the Peraltas, a prominent Spanish mining family from Sonora, Mexico. The patriarch, Miguel, and his three grown sons, Miguel Jr., Pedro, and Ramon, had become rich mining silver in the region. But when those mines began to run dry, they went north in search of new wealth. At that time, Arizona was a territory of Mexico. It was there, in the Superstition Mountains, just south of the Salt River, that the Peraltas found gold. The family began mining in the western part of the range in the early 1840s. They may have had as many as eight mines in the area. They used mule-driven devices called arastras to crush the ore and kilns to melt the gold into ingots. Once they had mined all the gold they could carry on their donkeys, the family packed up and made the long trek back to Sonora. But according to the stories, they made three maps before they left— one for each of the sons. That way, each could return to the gold mines when they needed or desired more wealth. The Peraltas spent the next few years back home, but by 1846, tensions were brewing between Mexico and the United States. The U.S. wanted Mexico's northern territories, including Arizona. Fearing they'd be unable to return to the mine if the land came under U.S. control, the Peraltas made a second journey in 1848. 
by then, Miguel Sr. had died, so one of his sons, Miguel Jr., remained at home to look after their property in Mexico. His two brothers and a cousin set out with a team of miners to Arizona. Using their map, they quickly located their mines and once again began processing ore into refined gold. Having had few problems with the Apaches in the past, the Peraltas weren't expecting any trouble. But when the Apaches saw that the Spaniards were back, they decided that they'd had enough intrusions into their sacred mountains. A battle broke out, spurring the miners to gather as much ore as they could before escaping. As they fled through the final pass, the miners were cut down by arrows from the hillsides above. Those who made it through the narrow pass and onto the plains were chased down and slaughtered. Spooked by the fighting and bloodshed, the mules took off further down the canyon, still loaded down with bulging sacks of gold. When the Apaches reached them, they cut the cumbersome sacks away and left them lying on the ground where they fell. They had no use for the shiny, studded rocks, but they did want the Spaniards' pack animals. Only one miner made it back to Sonora, empty-handed and stricken with grief and fear. Hearing this miner's tale, Miguel Peralta Jr., the last surviving brother, vowed never to return to the Superstition Mountains. For the next 20 years, the Peralta mines lay untouched. In an effort to ward off future prospectors, the Apache people reportedly covered the openings. They used logs and rocks to fill the shafts, hiding any trace of them. But the gold wasn't forgotten. In the 1860s, a surgeon named Abraham Thorne was posted to nearby Fort McDowell. He worked with the local tribes, treating their sick and injured members. To thank him for his work, a group of Apache people supposedly blindfolded Thorne and led him into the mountains. There, they allowed him to take gold from one of the mines. Accounts of this story differ across sources. Some suggest Thorne never saw an actual mine, only a stash of gold lying on the ground. If this is true, it might have been one of the packs left by the massacred Peralta miners. Others point out that since Thorne was allegedly blindfolded, he couldn't possibly have known if he was even in the superstitions at all. Whatever the case, a few years later, around 1871, one of the Peralta mines came to the attention of two foreigners, Jacob Waltz and his partner, Jacob Weiser. Their discovery turned the whispers of hidden gold into a full-blown treasure hunt. Coming up, we'll explore the stories and legends of the Dutchman, Jacob Waltz, and his gold mine. Now, back to the story. Rumors of gold mines in central Arizona's Superstition Mountains go back to at least the 1840s. Allegedly, they were first discovered and mined by the Spanish Peralta family from nearby Sonora, Mexico. Around 1848, the Peraltas were attacked by local Apache people. Only one man survived. After that, the mines lay untouched and forgotten until a German immigrant named Jacob Waltz arrived. 
Waltz was born around 1810 in Germany. He would later be called a Dutchman because of the American corruption of the word Deutsch, which means German. Waltz and his childhood friend, Jacob Weiser, immigrated to the United States sometime between 1848 and 1860. They worked odd jobs, fought in the Civil War, and tried and failed at prospecting in San Francisco. Finally, they ended up empty-handed in the town of Arispe, Sonora. In Arispe, they found themselves watching a card game. The dealer kept winning, and finally one of the losing gamblers got angry. He called the dealer a cheat, and a fight broke out. The dealer stabbed the other man in the shoulder before the two Jacobs intervened and knocked him senseless. They took his money and gave it to the injured man. The man's name was Miguel Peralta Jr. When he learned that they were prospectors, Miguel told Waltz and Weiser about the old mines his family had once owned in Arizona. He said he'd been planning another trip, but fear of another Apache attack had prevented him from actually going. However, now that he'd met up with two former soldiers who were also prospectors, he made them an offer they couldn't refuse. If they'd go with him to the mine, he'd take what he wanted and leave the rest of the gold for them. Waltz and Weiser readily agreed to the plan. Setting out with pack animals, tools, and a crew of hired workers, they made the two-week journey into the superstitions. They soon located the shaft and got to work. The three men made their residence in an old stone hut just outside the main entrance to the mine, which was shaped like an upside-down funnel in the ground. Terraced ledges every few feet offered hand and footholds for miners going up and down. There was a second entrance that allegedly sat lower on the hillside at an angle. It went straight into the mountain in order to bisect a massive vein of gold ore embedded in quartz. According to Waltz, that vein was so rich, gold would practically fall right out of the rock when hammered. It wasn't long before they brought out thousands of dollars worth of ore. Peralta loaded up his mules and wagons with all he could carry, then allegedly gave Waltz a deed to the mine. He departed, but the two Jacobs continued mining, emptying out as much gold as they could. They stashed the ore in three different caches. Waltz described two as being small and containing several thousand dollars worth of gold each. The last was larger and held about $20,000 worth, the equivalent of over $350,000 today. Their years of hard work were about to pay off. Until disaster struck. One night, their mule got loose and found its way to the food supplies. What it didn't eat, it spilled on the ground and trampled. With no food, Weiser and Waltz had no choice but to make the long journey to the nearest trading post. They decided that Waltz would go for provisions while Weiser stayed back and continued working the mine. The trip took Waltz five days, and when he returned, he found the camp in shambles. The animals were gone. All that remained of Weiser was his tattered shirt. Assuming his partner must have been attacked by Apaches, Waltz quickly gathered his things and headed out of the mountains. 
But before leaving, he emptied one of the smaller caches. He planned to eventually go back for the larger cache, but a few years went by and fear of the Apaches kept him away. Within a decade, it was the late 1870s. Waltz was nearly 70 years old, so he settled into a small house on the outskirts of Phoenix and began raising chickens. He had few friends and was rarely seen in public, preferring to live like a hermit in his little adobe hut on the edge of town. But rumors spread of his alleged wealth and the enormous amounts of gold ore he routinely cashed in at the Mint in San Francisco. However, Waltz lived like a humble chicken farmer for a full decade. Every week, he sold eggs to a woman named Julia Thomas. She ran a local bakery and ice cream parlor with her adopted son, Reinhardt. In the summer of 1890, Julia fell into a financial bind following a divorce. Her debts began to pile up and she was in danger of losing her business. When 80-year-old Waltz found out about Julia's financial problems, the German prospector offered to pay off her debt of $600, over $15,000 today. And one evening in December 1890, he invited her to his house and made an even better offer. He said that he wanted Julia to find the mine and take whatever she could from it. He had no use for gold anymore, and he didn't want Julia and her son to ever have to worry about money again. The prospector promised to show her the way to the mine in the spring when the weather warmed up. Shocked at the old man's revelation, Julia told him she had to think about it before she could agree to finance a full-blown mining expedition. Thinking that she doubted his story, Waltz decided to play his ace. He told her son, Reinhardt, to dig a hole in the dirt floor in front of the fireplace. A few feet down, Reinhardt's shovel hit the top of a wooden box. He pulled it out of the ground and laid it on the table. Inside, Julia and Reinhardt saw a glittering pile of high-grade gold ore, a small fortune. Waltz assured them that it was only a fraction of what still sat untouched in his hidden mine. That was all it took to get Julia Thomas signed on. In February 1891, she and Jacob Waltz began preparing for their trip to the mine. Waltz was 80 years old, but had every intention of making the journey into the rugged mountains. Unfortunately, disaster struck once again. That month, the worst flood in Arizona history swept across the state. After surviving several weeks of ankle-high water in his home, Waltz got sick. Julia nursed him in her house during his illness, but in spite of her care, his health failed. While on his deathbed, Waltz told Reinhardt how to find the mine in as much detail as he could. But Reinhardt was illiterate. There was no way for him to write his instructions down. Walt said that the mine was in extremely rugged country. He pointed out that the large stockpile was very close to the mine, and if they found one, they'd find the other. He added that the shaft was in a north-south canyon, situated high on a hillside. Weaver's Needle, the most prominent landmark in the area, stood to the south. It was visible from his mine. 
At the entrance to the canyon were the ruins of a stone hut. Further in was a small cave and another stone hut that Waltz and Weiser had used while working on the mine. Finally, he told Julia she could have his local stash of gold after he died. He never reburied it by the fireplace, and he urged her to remove it from under his bed after he passed. When Waltz died in late October, Julia saw to it that Waltz had a proper burial in a local cemetery. An obituary in the Phoenix Herald said that he had died with a blessing for her on his lips. But when Julia and Reinhardt went back to Waltz's hut to retrieve the gold he'd promised to them, it was gone. Someone else had gotten there first. They were crestfallen, but they knew a better treasure awaited them in the desert. They would find it the next summer. In August 1892, Julia and Reinhardt prepared for their journey into the Superstition Mountains. Though they were armed with detailed directions, the task was a monumental one. The mine allegedly had two entrances, but Waltz claimed to have closed off the lower one, walling it up and covering it with dirt. Furthermore, a major earthquake had hit the area in 1887. Not only might it have further obscured the entrance to the mine, it could have destroyed it completely. Even if it left the mine intact, it could have altered the landscape around it, making Waltz's directions impossible to follow. Undeterred, Julia sold her bakery and ice cream parlor to finance the expedition. On August 11, 1892, she and Reinhardt set out to find Waltz's treasure trove. And she told everyone where she was going. An article in the Phoenix Gazette stated, Julia Thomas is prospecting for a lost mine, the location of which she believes she holds the key to. As they made the 40-mile trek from Phoenix to the Superstitions, Julia and Reinhardt had continuous problems with the wagon they'd brought. About three miles before they reached the first huge cliffs of the mountain range, they abandoned the wagon and began walking with their team of mules. It took several days to make the arduous five-mile trek to Weaver's Needle. Julia believed the Dutchman's mine would be located just east of the Needle. They began their search almost immediately after they arrived, but found they could only work in the early morning and late evening. It was simply too hot during the day. After three weeks of fruitless searching through canyons and across hillsides, their supplies began to run low. The natural springs in the area had dried up in the summer heat, so water was scarce. Forced to admit defeat, Julia and Reinhardt returned home to Phoenix empty-handed. The mother and son became the first in a long line of treasure hunters hoping to strike it rich on the Dutchman's gold. And while Julia and Reinhardt were devastated, at least they returned home with their lives. Coming up, the Dutchman's gold leads to further death and misfortune. Now back to the story. In early 1891, an elderly prospector named Jacob Waltz told his friend and caretaker, Julia Thomas, of a secret gold mine in the Superstition Mountains. 
Based on the detailed instructions, Julia and her son went searching for the mine, only to come up empty-handed. Following her failed expedition into the superstitions, Julia went broke. She couldn't afford to return to the mine, but she could recoup some of her losses. Julia took Waltz's stories and turned them into maps. She sold the maps to eager treasure hunters. Julia made local news, and soon others were heading into the mountains, many armed with Julia's maps. Enthusiasts identified several canyons in the area that ran north to south. Some even had the ruins of stone buildings at their entrances, just as Waltz had described. But searchers continued to come out of the mountains with nothing but empty wagons. According to a newspaper account from Phoenix in 1895, a prospector found a cave in the vicinity of Weaver's Needle with a stone hut nearby. It fit the description Waltz had given Julia about where he and Weiser had slept while working the mine. But the article didn't say exactly where it was, and the prospector failed to find any gold. Stories of the mine and efforts to find it remained a mostly local phenomenon in the first few decades of the 20th century. But that all began to change in 1916, when the son of a federal employee and amateur treasure hunter came into possession of a map. Erwin Ruth worked near the border inspecting imported cattle. Through several contacts in Mexico, he heard about the mines in the United States that had once been owned by Mexican. One of these was the Peralta Mine in the Superstition Mountains. Intrigued, Irwin did more research and found someone claiming to be a descendant of the Peraltas. This descendant gave Irwin a map that had allegedly been in his family for generations. Erwin knew he had to give the map to his father, an avid treasure hunter named Adolf Ruth. Adolf enjoyed researching lost mines and treasure hoards and spent much of his free time looking for them. Once he saw the map for himself, Adolf was taken by the tale of the lost Dutchman gold mine. He researched it avidly, reading every story about Jacob Waltz he could find. But it was another 15 years or so before he finally made his long journey to Arizona. By then, he was at least 66 years old and retired. Ruth also suffered from a limp, thanks to a broken leg he'd sustained looking for a different lost mine in another state. However, his disability didn't stop him from heading into the superstitions alone to look for the Dutchman's gold mine. He'd read the description that Waltz gave to Julia Thomas. Comparing it to the map he had in his possession, Ruth was convinced he knew exactly where to look. On June 13, 1931, Adolf Ruth stopped off at a ranch near the Superstition foothills to purchase supplies and gear. Hearing that he was heading into the mountains, the rancher tried to talk him out of it, the superstitions were like an oven in June, but Ruth was determined to find the treasure now. He didn't want anyone to swoop in at the last minute and snatch it up. Despite his reservations, the rancher finally agreed to let two of his ranch hands lead Adolf Ruth to Weaver's Needle and show him where he could find water. The ranch hands returned without any problem, leaving Ruth to go find his gold mine. 
but Adolph Ruth was never seen again. When the rancher went out a week later to check on him, Ruth's camp was abandoned. The rancher promptly notified the local sheriff. Rescue workers looked for Adolph. His son, Irwin, traveled to Phoenix to help direct the efforts, but every search failed. Then, a few months after Adolf disappeared, a couple of campers came across a bottle floating in the Salt River with a message inside. It read, I'm sitting under a tree in a creek with a broken leg. I've got to have help quick. P.S. I've found the lost Dutchman. By then, Adolf's disappearance had been widely reported. The newspapers picked up the message-in-a-bottle story. It made national headlines, reinvigorating the search. Still, nothing was found until December 1931. The county sheriff, together with a search team, came across a skull lying in heavy brush at the top of a ridge. Dental examinations proved the skull belonged to Adolf Ruth. It had two holes that appeared to be entrance and exit wounds from a 44 caliber revolver. However, Adolf Ruth set out alone, and the angle of the entry suggested it couldn't have been self-inflicted. Investigators noted that the skull had been found above a creek that ran to the Salt River, precisely where the message in a bottle had been found. A month later, the rest of Ruth's body was uncovered. Among the papers in his pockets was a note that described roughly where he believed the mine to be. It stated, It lies within an imaginary circle, whose center is marked by the weaver needle. Ruth went on to describe his route. He took the first canyon northward from the western end of the range. From there, he crossed a rocky ridge and headed into a tributary canyon. He described it as very deep and rocky and densely wooded with a continuous thicket of scrub oak. But at that point, the note cut off without giving any further explanation. At the very bottom, Adolf had scrawled the words, about 200 feet across from cave, Veni, Vidi, Vici. That's a Latin phrase attributed to Julius Caesar following a battlefield victory. It means, I came, I saw, I conquered. So did Adolf Ruth find the Dutchman mine? Perhaps his quotation indicated he'd found what he was looking for. Except he didn't leave any description of where he discovered the mine. Even his map was missing. It wasn't found at his campsite, nor was it among the papers with his body. In addition, no explanation was ever offered for how his head came to be separated from the skeleton. The general consensus was that Ruth had been murdered by someone who wanted his map. Other theories suggested he'd found the mine, and whoever had killed him had done so to keep its location a secret. Those ideas gained further traction in 1947 when another explorer went missing. James Cravey was one of the many treasure hunters who went looking for the mine in the wake of Adolf's disappearance. His story parallels Adolf's at many turns. They both departed for the mine in the month of June and disappeared shortly thereafter. 
Both went alone and had made it known locally that they were searching for the gold mine. Cravey's body was found about eight months after he disappeared. But when he was discovered, it was immediately noted that the corpse was lying on a well-traveled trail. It certainly hadn't been there for eight months. Someone had placed it there recently, even though it was clear he'd been dead for a long time. More alarming was the fact that like Adolf before him, Cravey had been decapitated. His head was found a few days after the rest of his body. It seemed someone was desperately trying to keep people from finding the Dutchman mine and desecrating corpses as a warning. Despite these murders, as well as several others, treasure hunters couldn't be dissuaded from venturing into the superstitions in search of Jacob Waltz's gold. Nonetheless, it took 20 years for the next breakthrough. In the early 1960s, a group of Dutchman enthusiasts reached out to an Oklahoma private detective named Glenn McGill. They wanted him to research the stories of Waltz's gold and determine if they were true. McGill became obsessed with the case, digging through census records, reading old newspapers, and even traveling to Sonora to find the Peralta's descendants. But it was when he contacted Adolf Ruth's son that he finally found the clue he was looking for. Erwin Ruth still had copies of his father's maps, the ones everyone thought had gone missing. Within the superstitions, they pinpointed Bluff Spring Mountain, specifically an area called Canyon Fresco. McGill hired helicopters to survey the region. This was the place where the old Peralta miners were known to have kept their beasts of burden. It was also the area where Julia Thomas had focused her expedition 70 years earlier. Thanks to these searches, McGill and his team identified what was undoubtedly a mine shaft. Certain they had found Walls's treasure trove, they immediately filed to create a company called the Lost Dutchman Mine Exploration Corporation. They even filed a mining claim with Pinal County. In the spring of 1966, national headlines reported that the Lost Dutchman gold mine had finally been found. In press releases, McGill stated, We not only think it's the lost Dutchman mine, we know it is. With their claims now broadcast as front-page news, they set to work excavating the pit. And that's when they got the surprise of their lives. There was no gold in the mine. It was played out, empty. If this was the Dutchman's mine, It was now obvious why he'd abandoned it. There was nothing left inside. McGill and his partners continued to dig and search for several more years, but they finally had to abandon their claim and their company in the 1970s. By then, they were penniless and believed that what they'd found wasn't Waltz's mine after all. So where's the gold? Some say the Apache people emptied it out after Waltz left, hoping no one else would raid their land for treasure. Others say it was found by a different miner, one who killed to protect their secret fortune. And still more think the gold is out there, waiting to be unburied. 
Just like those of Julia Thomas and Adolph Ruth before him, Glenn McGill's disappointment didn't deter other searchers. The legend of the Dutchman mine still attracts thousands of visitors to the Superstition Mountains every year. The Lost Dutchman State Park sits along the western foothills and provides a starting point for many people with dreams of finding hidden treasure. There's even a museum there that catalogs the history of the region and examines some of the conflicting information surrounding the mine. Notably, the exhibits detail how most of what we know about the lost Dutchman comes from a few unverifiable sources. Julia Thomas told Waltz's story to a journalist named Sims Ely around the turn of the 20th century. Sims later wrote a book that has become required reading for all Dutchman enthusiasts. But there are no independent third parties who can corroborate Julia's tales or ensure that Ely faithfully recounted them. Few of the facts prior to the 1890s can be independently verified. There's virtually no hard evidence whatsoever for the existence of the Peralta family or their minds. Archaeological data suggests Mexican miners likely worked in the superstitions, and they might even have been named Peralta. The name is common in Sonora. But the specific stories passed down are likely legendary. Jacob Waltz probably either made up the account of meeting Miguel Peralta in Mexico, or Sims Ely did. As for Waltz, he definitely existed, but has been depicted in strikingly different ways. Some stories paint him as a good, honest, and intelligent man with an academic background and a desire to help his friends out. Others show him as a hard-drinking, backcountry prospector who would kill for his gold. These accounts tend to say that his wealth didn't come from legitimate mining at all, but from claim jumping and stealing. But then there's that story about Glenn McGill, He seems, at the very least, to have found an old mine that had already been emptied out. And it was in the spot where Waltz allegedly said it would be. It certainly could have been the Dutchman's mine, but it could also have been one of the old Spanish mines that was hidden by Apaches. If Waltz knew his mine was empty, he wouldn't have told Julia Thomas there was still gold there. And Julia wouldn't have made the story up, considering she sold her business to finance her search. So, presuming this part of the tale is accurate, a mine filled with gold must still be undiscovered in the Superstition Mountains of Arizona. I'm more apt to believe McGill found the mine, but it had been emptied by a person or people who killed Adolf Ruth, James Cravey, and others. After all, so many more have lost their lives to this quest. There have been reports of more than a dozen suspected homicides over the years, in addition to the numerous deaths from accidents and natural causes. In the last decade alone, four people perished while searching for the mine. Just enough that it may be more than a coincidence. Still, it would mean nearly a century of murders and cover-ups. Some people would do anything for a few million dollars. Whatever truth lies behind the stories of the Dutchman gold, many people still believe it's out there, waiting to be found. Whether there's anything to be found or not, 
treasure hunters and curiosity seekers will continue to explore the rugged and unforgiving Superstition Mountains for years to come. And some of them will never return. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. For more information on the Lost Dutchman Gold Mine, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Lost Dutchman Mine by Sims Ely and The Sterling Legend by Esti Knatzer extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. But we have great news for you. If you hate waiting two weeks for the next Gone episode, now you don't have to. Beginning next Monday, we're releasing short, bi-weekly episodes exclusively on Spotify. These episodes will explore smaller mysteries in between our full-length episodes of Gone. These short Gone episodes are a Spotify exclusive, so make sure to follow us there. Don't worry, our regular full-length episodes won't change at all. They'll still be released every other week, wherever you listen to podcasts. To find new Gone content every week, simply type Gone into the search bar on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Gone, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Gone was written by Scott Christmas, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>